Hi, this is Pastor JC. I want to thank you for listening to today's podcast here at Faith Outreach Church. We want to invite you anytime you're in the area to come by and visit us at 3001 Wallace Avenue here in Terre Haute, Indiana. Sit back and enjoy today's message. Morning, everybody. Why don't we lift our hands and worship God and pray for just a moment. Father, we worship you this morning. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we're born again. We've been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, the eyes of our understanding and being in life. Thank you for the knowledge of your will and all spiritual understanding. We may walk worthy of you, Lord, be fruitful in every good work. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that abides and empowers. Father, we thank you today as we study your word. He's with us as a helper, as a guide, taking the written word and unveiling the living word, Jesus, into our hearts. We thank you for that, Father. We believe we receive it in Jesus' name. Now, Acts chapter 10 this morning, it's, it's uh, every believer's desire that really serves the Lord to see, experience, or be a part of what we would categorize uh, a revival, an awakening, a move of God, uh, whatever, you know, whatever, uh, however you want to categorize it. And I think one of the issues that we have with that is our only image of what that is, is the past. So it's, a, uh, it's an assignment and a task for today's uh, church and believers to what I, I call it, I, I've kind of used the... Uh, term for years, contend for a move of God. And uh, of course, now we've experienced them over the years, part of them growing up, different things like that. I remember a revival that, that broke out at a church called, uh, uh, what's the name of that church? Um, uh, it, was a, it was a Episcopal church, Christ the Redeemer in Houston. These people had no teaching on the deeper things of God or the Spirit. They had no teaching on uh, the Holy Spirit, just their basic... Uh, uh, denominational teaching that the pastor had was all they had. But they were worshiping one Sunday morning and uh, a church of about four or five hundred people right there in the, in the heights in Houston County, right in the center of Houston. And the Holy Ghost fell on that congregation. And uh, they didn't even know what it was. And so for weeks, that's literally what they would do. There was no scheduled speakers. There was, no, uh, uh, there was really no uh, uh, format to the meeting. People would just come and then start worshiping God and the Spirit of God would fall. It was an amazing, I, was, I went there several times as a kid. It was, it, was, it was amazing to experience and amazing to see. And at the same time, almost parallel time, there was another revival on the other side of, on the other side of uh, town at a church that a, that, a, that a man named Raymond T. Ritchie built, Evangelistic Temple. And they had an evangelist named Brian Rudd, R-U-D-D was his last name. He was from Canada. He was the son of an Assembly of God pastor. He became a heroin addict and a bank robber. And was in, he was in prison for one crime. And they were investigating him for another crime that he had committed. And God changed his fingerprints. He got right with God in prison. And God literally changed his fingerprints. And he got out and became an evangelist. That, that revival was, that revival was uh, I was in it several times. It was unique in that the crowd coming to that revival were what we called in that day the hippie, hippie crowd. 
I mean, they were packing. This was a church of probably 1,200 to 1,500, and they were, it would be packed out with all these long-haired people and everything, and then, the, and then the, you know, the few saints that would come, and they would put so many drugs on the altar. They would come to the altar and get saved that they would have, there were, there were so many drugs up on the altar that my dad had to coordinate with the Houston Police Department's narcotics division to come and haul off all the drugs every night. So, you know, those revivals, those moves of God, but every one of them, I guarantee you, if you could peel back the layers and look behind it, it, may, it might have been only one little saint of God there at that Episcopal church that was, uh, that was praying. It might have been, you know, just a couple of people there at, at uh, the pastor's name was Austin Wilkerson at that time, at Brother Wilkerson's church uh, there in Houston when Brian Rudd was there for all those weeks. So, you know, we think many times that we uh, uh, have to have this mass group of people that are praying or contending, but you really don't. You just really need people that'll get in agreement and that'll stay with it and contend for the move of God. Now, as it begins to break in a larger area or a larger way, I've been, this is scriptures I've been using at our church as we contend for the move of God because we have seen uh, this, this pattern right here. I would call it the ingredients or the elements of revival, which, calls, which, which is prayer is right in the midst of it, right in the middle of it. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 10. If it's okay, I'm going to read out of my Passion Bible. I've been studying and reading it lately, and uh, I kind of like how it reads here. Uh, Acts chapter 10 verse 1 says, At that time there was a Roman military officer, Cornelius, who was in charge of 100 men stationed in Caesarea. He was the captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout man of extraordinary character who worshipped God, prayed regularly together with all his family. He also had a heart for the poor and gave generously to them. Now we know that uh, King James reads... Uh, uh, there was in, uh, in Caesarea a certain man named Cornelius. He was a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house, gave much alms to the people, and prayed to God always. Now, it's a, it's a unique uh, process that God has shown us here. Now, without Cornelius, now I know God would have done something else, but without Cornelius, Christianity would have remained a sect of Judaism. Uh, Cornelius was a Gentile. He was not a he was not a uh, 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 he was not a, he was not Jewish. Now, just as if we were here this morning and this was not a church, it was a it was a, maybe a restaurant or a college class, and we were teaching on on cooking. You could talk about recipes, and what's unique about recipes is there are a multitude of different ingredients that go into one recipe to create one taste. Now, I was always fascinated to go to uh, uh, to Leah's uh, mom and dad's house and watch her mother at the stove. I mean, the way she did gravies, the way she did all these different uh, dishes, the way that she made. But what's the corn dish that you, you make it now and you, you make it good? Makshu, which is a corn. I still always saw the corn that was growing in Indiana when we drove up from the airport. But it's a unique dish where they shave all the corn off of the cob and then they mix it with onion, bell pepper, celery, and they, then they use a cream, kind of a cream in it. They make this and they call it makshu. And it's just amazing to watch people put a recipe together. Now, I, I, like, I like sweets. I like cake. But now if you take a cake, if we were studying how to make the latest innovation in cakes, we would have a table up here with, with varied ingredients. And all of the ingredients, you would, you would have flour, maybe some vanilla, you would have raw sugar, you would have um, your liquids. All of those ingredients, eggs, all of those ingredients by themselves Many of them are distasteful. You wouldn't eat them. You wouldn't eat raw flour. Hopefully, hopefully you wouldn't eat raw flour. 
Hopefully you wouldn't eat raw sugar. Hope you, you wouldn't drink uh, uh, you know, vanilla extract. But isn't it amazing how in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, how to uh, put the recipe together and blend it and how to cook it, put it in an oven. I've always seen the oven as a place out of your control. But out of it comes what? Something good for you to eat and something good for you to share with others. And that's, what, that's what's lacking in many believers is something good for them to eat and something good for them to share with others. Now the same is true of these, what we would call ingredients of revival. By themselves, instead of the word distasteful, let's take the word distasteful out and let's put the word inconvenient. That's in everything. Just think about this. In every dimension of life, if you as an individual could invent something that would make a process or, or something that, that, that people do more comfortable or more convenient, you're, 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 you're a multi-millionaire overnight. That's, the, that's really the, you know, all, everything we're doing. I mean, we're not, I'm watching all these malls all over the place that are shutting down. You walk into a mall now and all these stores are shutting down. And, and uh, there was a sporting goods store that I frequented for 40 years, a mom and pop store that, that sat on a road, actually over by, the, uh, by NASA, by where the uh, Space Center is. And they were there for years and years and years, and they, they put this big sign out that said closing. So I went in there to talk to him. Why, why are you closing, man? You guys seem like you have good business. He said, we cannot compete with, with the catalog, the, uh, the, the, what's on the end. People order off the internet. They can get the same thing on the internet. They can get it delivered to their house. They don't have to drive out here and get it. So it's more convenient. And that's, that's the way people look at life today is that anything that is all the old school ways of doing things are gone and they've been replaced by things that, that create more comfort and more convenience. But it's not like that in the move of God. It's not like that in revival. God has not replaced uh, uh, his moving or his, or his interaction with people, especially on the supernatural realm, with something else that is more comfortable or more convenient. I dare to say it's, it's, it's more inconvenient, more uncomfortable. You say, why? Well, because of the day we live in, and the, uh, the sin that's in man right now, the, uh, the force of iniquity. Uh, you've got to make a decision. I want this. I, I want this as much as I, as, as I breathe. Uh, thank God for what happened back in the, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Thank God for all of that. But man, we're, here we are in, in 2020, and we want, we want what God wants now for today. We want to move a God. So it says in the, in the King James, he was devout one that feared God with all of his house, prayed, and gave much alms to the people. Now, if you do a little study about Cornelius, it's ama he's an amazing dude. The Romans, especially the Roman officer corps, the centurions, were known for their devotion to the gods that they served, and they served the gods of the planets. They served Mars and Jupiter and Venus and all these, and they had their little statuettes, and they had their little ways of praying to them. And now here comes Cornelius, so he probably started out not as an, occup an occupier, but a conqueror. They came in, they conquered the land of Judea, they set up shop. That was very unique in ancient times because that's not the way the Assyrians, the Babylonians, that's not the way the Greeks, that's not the way any other society did anything. They came in and basically had a scorched earth policy. They took everything that was of value and wealth, they killed everything that they didn't want, and they enslaved everything that they did want. Rome was different. Rome kind of thought, well, instead of doing that, let's leave it intact. Let's conquer it. Let's leave it intact. Let's set up outposts and let's govern the areas with outposts and let's extract taxes. 
And that's exactly what they did. We know that uh, in the birth of Jesus. Jesus, there was a taxation going on. That was Rome exerting its will over that area. Now, think about this for a minute. What was it in Cornelius that stirred him to not accept the gods of his peers, but to accept the God of people that he had conquered? Now think about that for a minute. If you're a, if you're a, a, a leader of a nation or a, or a general or an officer and, a, and you go in and you conquer a people, don't you think if you conquer those people, you conquer their God? I mean, that's, that, that, would be the, that would be the natural thought. But that something must have happened to him. There must have been, uh, you know, there's different commentators that say that he was the, that he was the centurion that came to Jesus with the, with the you know, I, I'm a man under, uh, under authority, that he was that one. There's no real biblical proof of that, but if he was, then he experienced something beyond uh, his capacity to understand what God was. And one commentator, uh, one commentator said this, he, he, he fell in love with the Jewish religion, religion and became a Jewish proselyte. That's what he was. Now, in this, in this uh, setting as a Jewish proselyte, he became devout. That set him apart. You can, you can tell, whatever a person's devout about, you can tell. You can go into their house and look around their house and say, uh, this person is a devout a hunter, fisherman, or they like football, or uh, uh, what is it, the University of Indiana. Oh, they're, they're, they're the you know, University of Indiana fans. They wear the colors all the time. Uh, you ever heard, uh, we hear it more than anything else uh, when it comes to religion, a devout Catholic. Well, that's somebody you can tell. They probably have rosary beads hanging on their, uh, hanging on their rear view mirror. You know, they go to Mass every time they have Mass. What, being devout is, a, is an intense motivation to participate with something even though you may not be able to even participate on the level that you would like, there's a lot of devout uh, baseball fans, football fans that, you know, if they could, they'd play the game, but they can't, but they're so devout toward the game that they buy season tickets, they show up, you know. And listen, that's something that must come back into the church. The, the user freaky, uh, uh, user freaky, that's about right. User-friendly user phenomenon. <laughs> user-friendly phenomenon, put an enormous amount of apathy and complacency into the body of Christ. And every church, every believer, everyone needs to resist the apathy and complacency that comfort and convenience afford us when it comes to spirituality. With spirituality, you need to take off all the restraints and you need to go after it with all the gusto you have. And you've got to be willing to rise above the level of your need. That's one of the things I think that's been one of the faults of faith teaching is we've only, fought, we've only taught faith up to the level of our needs so people are only willing to serve God up to the level of their needs. Now back, when I was a kid, back in the, I went into the first grade in 1962. I was in the first grade. And so I remember, you know, President Kennedy. I remember when he was assassinated. That was, I was in the second grade when he was assassinated. But I remember when he began to talk about going to the moon in this, in this decade. Uh, he said it at his inaugural speech. He began to talk about it. When I was in the first grade, second grade, I didn't know much about it. But I studied it later. Politically, he got a tremendous amount of resistance because it was going to cost billions of dollars. And those that were resisting him were resisting him on this principle. Well, we have civil issues. We have poor. We have people that need food. We have all these problems in America. And you're wanting to, to, to spend a billion dollars to go to the moon? 
So for them, it did not compute, it did not make sense. But now he was thinking on a higher level. He was not thinking about all the needs of his, of his nation. He was thinking about the Soviet Union and the missiles they tried to put in Cuba. And he was thinking about nuclear war and how if a nuclear war breaks out, it kind of puts all your other problems into perspective real quick. And so he was unwilling to settle with the current issues of the day because there was a greater issue at stake which needed to be addressed that nobody was willing to address it. So they developed the technology to go to the moon, and we all know the story, they put the first man on the moon, and the technology that came out of going to the moon, it changed the way you brush your teeth. All the technology that came out of that gave us a sense of security when it came to our military, and literally it empowered us to win the Cold War. And all of that technology, and people back in the 60s said, we don't need to do that, we got all these other problems. Well, you're probably going to have all those other problems the rest of your life, but the deal is, you need to reach up higher and serve God on a higher level than just the level of your need. That's what devout's all about. I like to say it like this. Cornelius, he just fell in love with God. As much as God as he could figure out who God was, as much as he could experience of God, and if he was that centurion that saw the manifestation of a miracle for his servant, then I guarantee you he was really interested in this God and this Jesus and this spirit and these miraculous and, and the history of these Jewish people. So, you know, he was devout. Secondly, it said he feared God. Now that's something right there that needs to come back in the church is a reverential fear of God. I'm amazed at how people treat ministries and pastors and how people treat the church in general, not realizing that the way you treat the church is the way you treat Jesus. You know, when, when Saul was arrested there on the, on, the, on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you per persecuting the, uh, the church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He took it personally, what Saul was doing to the church. He took it personally. And you've got to understand, your response to, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ is no higher or lower than your response to the local church. You have to realize that there has to be a fear of God. And I'm not talking about being afraid. I'm talking about this reverential awe on the inside of you where you, you're just kind of like, man, I, you know, I, I need to be at church. I need to be a part of church. I need to study my Bible. I need to pray. And that comes out of that reverential awe, that reverential fear of God. Our family, I never understood why, why, why my dad, and my mom drug us to church every service. We went to every service. I missed football games as a kid. I missed ba baseball games, social things that we were supposed to do. I did not get to do because I was at church. We went to church on Sunday morning. We went to church on Sunday night. We went to church on Wednesday night. We went to church on Thursday night for Royal Rangers and Missionettes. We went to every special meeting. We had uh, evangelists and speakers that would come and hold two-week services, two Two, uh, uh, two services a day, and I would be in every one of those. And some of them were in the summertime. But see, we learned to fear God. There was a reverential fear of God that was in place on the inside of us. And even when I was backslid and away from God, because of that reverential fear of God, there were things, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't do it because I feared God. There was, a, there was a, a, a kid in the neighborhood where we lived. I wasn't living at home. I was living, I had an apartment up by the beach. And uh, I was selling, selling, uh, selling weed at the time, selling marijuana. And I had heard on a Wednesday night that he had gone to the Assembly of God Church and gotten saved. Well, he shows up knocking on my door a Friday afternoon after he got a paycheck wanting to buy uh, a bag of weed. I wouldn't sell it to him. I, wouldn't sell, I said, 
I said, Mark, I heard you went down to the church and got saved on Wednesday. Yeah, I went down there and prayed some prayer. But I don't know about all that. I said, well, I ain't selling you nothing. You got to go somewhere else to get it. I mean, I was, I was afraid to do that. I literally was afraid to do that. And the problem we have today is that so many people are not taught. So many uh, parents don't teach their children. The Bible says he feared God with all of his household. That means he took what he reverenced about God and what was an awe-inspiring about God, and he transmitted that into his family. He said, now this is how we're going to respond to God. Amen? He feared God. Everybody say, he feared God. Then it, then it says this, he gave much. Now this is interesting. Because we've all studied prosperity. We're all, you know, we tithe, we offer, we give. But now, let me ask you a question. Here's Cornelius. He is in a, he is in a, uh, a conquering army, which has become an army of occupation. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think he has any needs? He don't have any needs. He sees a house over there. He says, move those people out, move me in. He sees a horse he wants, he goes takes that person off and he takes that horse. He sees a crop in the field, he says go reap that crop and put that in my barn. He is a conqueror, everything is available to him. Anything he wants to take is there. So he is not, he is not giving based on any need that he has. He is using his giving to contend for a move of God. You know, we were in, uh, first trip we made to the Republic of Ireland was in 1988. We found some scattered prayer groups that were left over from a Catholic charismatic move that had taken place in the late 70s. We, we went from town to town. We started in Dublin. I believe we went out to the west side, went to Sligo, went to uh, a couple of other towns. But anyway, every place we went, we told people this. We're going to wind up our trip in Athlone, Ireland, which is geographically right in the center of the Republic of Ireland. And we told them, we're going to gather there on the weekend. Uh, we're going to, I think we did a Friday night, a Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning meeting, myself and another minister. And so we were in that meeting, and about 200 to 225 people showed up from all over Ireland. And so we began to teach and preach, and man, the Spirit of God began to move, and we just, we just had a powerful, powerful time uh, in that meeting. Now, during that week, which would have been the week of... Uh, I believe we arrived on the 12th of December. During that week, uh, December the 12th, 1988, a terrible earthquake took place in uh, uh, the northern part, right there in Siberia, in Russia. It was a horrible earthquake, and, and hundreds of people were killed, and there was great devastation. And on Monday or Tuesday morning, uh, we saw a, a newspaper, and the, and the, uh, and the, and the uh, uh, headline on the newspaper was, Nation of Ireland benevolently gives... 50,000 Irish pounds for relief from the, from the earthquake. And boy, everybody thought that was great, that was great. Well, I was, I was, uh, we were, I was, every other meeting we would, I would preach a meeting, this other minister, I would preach on this other minister. So I got up and I preached a message on this using the giving part of that. And so we just begin to exhort the people about, about, Using your giving, not, not, to, not to follow the pattern of some greed or, or, or try to use it to gain material, but to, but to show it to God as, this is how serious I am about me wanting God to do something in our nation. And so I did that. We didn't take an offering. We didn't take an offering on, on a, a Friday night, or all day Saturday, all day Sunday. But Sunday night, the Spirit of God fell in that place and began to move and, and one of the leaders in the Irish movement said, we need to take an offering. And he got up and began to initiate receiving an offering. About 200 to 225 people 
Over 50,000, over 50, about 57,000 Irish pounds came into that. Which in, in dollars, uh, about $75,000 came in, in that offering. And we were like, oh my goodness. I mean, it, and of course we left it there. We didn't take it home with us. We, we, we uh, began some things. That's how we began some things with, with church planning and with helping develop a, a ministry in that nation. But it was a, it was a testimony to their desire for a move of God in the nation. And God, and, God, and God gave them that move. They gave them that. Ireland at that time was the most depressed nation in Western Ireland. Excuse me, in Western Europe. There was no nation more impoverished than the nation or the Republic of Ireland. Not North Ireland, but the Republic of Ireland. Within five years, something called the Celtic Tiger hit. You've ever heard of the, uh, of the Celtic Tiger? It is literally talks about a, 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 a economic move in that nation in which technology moved into that nation and that nation within five years from 1988 to 1993 or 1994, it became the richest and the most prosperous nation in Western Europe. And it was directly because of the move of God. See, God will bless a whole region because of the people that are contending for a move of God there. So Cornelius was devout, he was fearing God, he was using his giving, then he was praying. Now here's another principle we need to understand. He was given to God, why? Because God was God. He was given to God, why? Because he was contending for a move of God. Then he began to pray. Now obviously, as we've just painted the picture for, uh, with the word of God, he was not praying for things. Amen? He had to be praying to try to get to know, try to get closer to, try to fellowship with, try to be intimate with this God of the Jewish people. I've got to know this God. I've got to, I've got to know who this God is. Certainly something on the inside of him was stirring. I'm sure he was hearing testimonies of outpourings like took place in Jerusalem, the missions trips, people out traveling. Uh, this is Acts chapter 10. He probably heard about the great enemy of the church that had gotten saved and gotten born again. And he's probably wondering in his mind, what does all this mean? What is the Holy Spirit? What is the new? He's probably wondering what all this is. And he's praying or he's communicating to God based upon his hunger for God, not just on a, for a need. And when you have that, when you have that, or when that gear shifts in your own life, we all have got needs. We all have needs that we're believing God for. But listen, when that gear shifts into your life, where your needs are put in their proper, proper perspective, you say, what perspective is that? You don't care. You cast your care. I don't, that doesn't mean you, you neglect anything. Or you, it means that you do not carry the load of that need. You recognize that the God that you're, you serve is the one that can supply all of your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So when you come to God, you come to God for fellowship. You come to God with intimate, for intimacy. You, come, you, you want to know this God. Who are you? I want to know. Did you know that was the cry of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life? He didn't say, he didn't say, Lord, give me another great revival like at Ephesus where, where you could take a handkerchief off of me and lay it on somebody and then get instantaneously healed. And in two years, we preached the gospel throughout. Give me another great missions church like the church at Philippi. Let us have another move of God like we had in Corinth. He did not do that. At the end of his life, his cry was this, that I might know him, that I might know Christ. He'd probably experienced revival on levels nobody else ever experienced. But here's what he desired. He wanted to know him more and more and more and more, even though he probably was more intimate with God than anybody on the planet. Amen? 
So he had, I like to say it's this, he had an ulterior motive for his ministry. We've all experienced that. We've all, we, we lived under it for, 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 for many decades under men like uh, uh, Kenneth E. Hagan, uh, Oral Roberts, Lester Sumrall. Those three right there are great examples because all three of those were raised off of a deathbed when they were a young boy, when they were 17 years old. Brother Hagan, he'd be up teaching, be up teaching. Where would he always go back to? Where would he always, anything. He'd cut it off the angle of what? Uh, 305 North, what, Chestnut, uh, what, in McKinney, Texas. He'd go right back, 1933, paralyzed boy laying in the bed, all that stuff. Man, my grandma's Methodist Bible. He could just go on and on. Every, he'd cut it off. You say why? Because that was the point in his life in which everything else was cut off of because that was his, that's where, that's where God intervened, saved his life, and his whole life, his whole ministry, all the books, all of the CDs and tapes, all of the ramus, all over the world were just the ulterior motive of him doing exactly what Paul was trying to do, get a hold of what got a hold of him. I'm trying to apprehend that which I apprehend, was apprehended of. That's the motivation for Christianity. Not how many jets you can have and how much money you can have in a bank, but trying to get a hold of what God... And see, we, we, hear, we hear Brother Hagin's testimony, Brother Summerall, he was dying of tuberculosis. He was actually at the point where, you, where you're coughing up that, that bloody flux out of your mouth and all of a sudden, boom, a vision on the wall, an open casket, an open Bible. God spoke in an audible voice, choose one. He said, I don't want to preach. Then God said, you'll die. Then he said, I'll preach. He told that over and over. I must have heard him tell it a hundred times. Because it was an event in his life that so united and joined him to God that he spent the rest of his life, all the churches he built, the 146 nations he went to, the Lassie End Time Feeding Program, everything, everything that was done, there was an ulterior motive to that. He was just trying to get a hold of what got a hold of him on that bed when he was dying. Dr. Roberts, the same way. The university in Tulsa, all of his tent meetings, all of his, he told me, he said, he said Rusty, both of my shoulders are plastic. I said, what? He said, both of, my, both of my shoulders are plastic. I said, why are both of your shoulders plastic? He said, for day, he said, because for day after day after day after day, for 20 years, I laid hands on over 10,000 people a day. Isn't that amazing? He's just trying to get a hold of what got a hold of him. Moses, you study Moses at the end of his life. I believe Deuteronomy 29, 30, right in there. He's blessing, all, all the elders of Israel are coming up. He's laying his hands. He's blessing them and blessing them. Judah and, and Iskar and, and all, Benjamin. And he's, he's blessing them, but he's not blessing them by the God that split the sea. He's not blessing them by the God that sent the manna. He's not blessing them by the God that delivered them from Egypt. He's blessing them by the goodwill of the God that dwelt in the bush. Because the manna was for Israel. The split sea was for Israel. The deliverance from Egypt was for Israel, but the bush was for him. Now, that's what we do. We hear the testimonies of the Kenneth E. Hazel Pastor. You, know, you talk about Paul the Apostle. You talk about, you talk about uh, uh, Moses. You talk about Kenneth Hagan and Oral Roberts. Lester. But you've got the same testimony. It may not be as spectacular, but you have the same testimony. One day in your life, something got a hold of you. And all the distractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil have to be put aside and resisted in order for you to make your life, your life, a quest to get a hold of what got a hold of you. Amen? 
Now, literally, this is, this is Cornelius. He's looking for that connection. He's contending for that connection. He's doing everything he knows to do. He's devout. He's fearing God. He's giving, and he's praying. Now, notice this. Verse 3. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had an open vision and saw the angel of God appear right in front of him, calling out his name, Cornelius. Startled, he was overcome with fear at the sight of the angel, and he asked, what do you want, Lord? And the angel said, all of your prayers and your generosity, I like this, to the poor have ascended before God as an eternal offering. That's why, that's why I wanted to use the, 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 the Passion uh, Bible today. As what, now, now we know the King James says, as a memorial. As a memorial. Your prayers and your giving has come up as a memorial. But what are memorials? Memorials is that which puts another in remembrance of a historical event. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to me that people have gone around our country tearing down all these statues. These are the memorials of our history. I used to fly into South Texas into a city down there called Harlingen. And when you fly into Harlingen, there is a replica of the raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi uh, uh, on the Battle of Iwo Jima uh, during World War II. And every time I go by there, every time I flew in there, whenever we drove out of that airport and went past that memorial, I remembered my American history. I remembered the Marine Corps. I remembered the battle. I remember all those boys that died in that sand. I remember the, uh, the fierce fighting of the Japanese. I remember the general that wouldn't get all of that. It all comes back into my memory because memorials stimulate your memory. Obviously, God's got a place in which he keeps his memorials. And they're built out of prayer and giving. They're built out of prayer and giving. We've experienced that. We've seen that. People that couldn't even get. I was in the nation of Haiti. And we were, we were actually not on in the nation. We were on an island about 20 miles off of Port-au-Prince called Laganov. There's 10,000 people that live on this island. Most desperate place I've ever been in my life. If you've ever been, if you've ever been to Haiti and been in Port-au-Prince, then you times that by a thousand and you've got Laganov. It is actually a curse word in the Haitian language. You know, when people say, you know, go to H-E-double-L-L, -L, in Haiti they don't say that. They say go to Laganov. That's what they say. So we went there and held a meeting. Now I went with CMA, Christian Missionary Association. They invited me to come, invited me to do their pastor's conference. We had 65 pastors that showed up that pastored on the island. Now I was instructed. You know, they said, Pastor Rusty, you can pre I mean, Brother Rusty, you can preach on anything you want. Redemption, you can preach on healing, but don't, you cannot preach on prosperity. These people are so poor. You cannot preach on prosperity. And I said, fine, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't my ministry. I was with somebody else, so I, I was doing, but the interpreter after two days, I was walking out. They had a big tent set up. They were doing medical missions. They had nurses and doctors. They had a dentist there. He pulled like a thousand teeth in four days. This is amazing. Anyway, uh, I'm walking out, and I noticed this group of pastors standing there. And, and the interpreter was, I could see him talking, looking back at me, looking back at them, talking, pointing at me. So he walked up to me, and he said, these pastors want you to preach on prosperity. They want you to, they want you to tell them how to prosper. And so I said, 
See, the, see those people right over there? I said, they're the ones who have, who have done this missions trip. Go ask them. So we, they went and asked the head of the CMA. He came back and said, if that's what they want, that's what you can do. The next day, I got down in the dirt, and I dug, and I made a farm. And I, te- I taught on seed time and harvest. Then I got over into redemption, and I began to show them how riches in the world is what you have. But riches in the kingdom are who you are. And when I begin to teach on that, that hit that crowd. Those, I guarantee you, all 65 of those pastors together could take every possession they have and sell it and wouldn't be enough to buy our lunch. I'm going to tell you something. They got rich in that meeting. They had an experience with God. They begin to see something. They wanted to take an offering. I was like, go ask those people over there. <laughs> Amen. And they, the money in Haiti is so nasty, it's like, it's like ink stamped on dirt. I had a, a, one of their, one of their uh, bills in my pocket, and I kept walking around thinking, what is smells so bad around here? And I, I, that, it was that bill in my pocket. They took that offering. They were so blessed. They gave. They had nothing to give. So I'm walking out, and this little Haitian pastor, he wasn't about that tall, he was... He was He had maybe four teeth in his mouth. He was just grinning. And he had this shirt on that you would not bathe your dog with. It had holes in it. And he, 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 the interpreter was walking beside. He grabbed that interpreter by the arm. He was all excited. He began to tell that interpreter. He began to tell him something. He looked at me. He says, he wants you to know that he always knew he was a rich man. He just never knew where his wealth was until you came and showed him today. Amen? Something got a hold of him. That's what God wants to do with people. And listen, when God moves like that, when people contend, that's what I'm doing at Island Church right now. I'm saying, look, we've got this prayer stirring that's broken out. We're praying. We've got part of that working. Now let's give. Let's contend for the move of God. Let's contend with our giving. Let's get that memorial because we want in heaven, when God begins to look at the memorials of heaven and begin to think about them, we want him to think about Galveston Island and doing something spectacular on the island. We, when the Lord began to talk to us about our ministry changing and our life changing, we were believing God we could go to Hawaii and pastor in Hawaii. We were believing God to go to Ireland or pastor in Ireland, anywhere, anywhere other than Galveston. They called Galveston the preacher's graveyard. Galveston was a wide open city for probably close to 100 years from the 1850s into the 1950s. Wide open, I mean by this. Uh, gambling's illegal in Texas. There was a casino on every corner. Prostitution's illegal in Texas. There was a brothel on every corner. It was just horrible. It was horrible. It was a wide open city. It stifled the economy of the city. In 1955, an evangelist named A.A. Allen, he came to Galveston. He set up a tent right up on the beach. Out of that revival, 20 couples got saved. Out of that revival, those 20 couples started the Assembly of God Church there. That Assembly of God Church is still there today. Has, I don't know, maybe 20 members in it. Uh, other than that, there was a, a Baptist pastor that got saved that raised up a, a little charismatic or, or word of faith church. Probably never grew over about a, a, a 200, pe- uh, 200 people. But now today, his son's pastoring. And the, there's a stirring that's going on there. But other than that, there hasn't been anything till we came. And we begin to preach. And we begin to declare. And people would tell, we had a, we had a pastor in Pasadena beg us, beg us, don't go to Galveston. 
And this is what he told us. He says, I have a million dollar building in Pasadena. I will give it to you. I will put your name on the title. You can have it. You are going to waste your ministry. We knew God had called us. It's amazing how when God tells you to do something, how he'll confirm it. We were in a meeting and and, and a guy, I have no idea who he was, came and gave me a hug, slipped his hand in my pocket. We got home, pulled it out. It's a check for $10,000 made out to Rusty Martin Ministries and in the corner it said for Island Church. We hadn't told anybody about Island Church. It was from a corporation in St. Louis, Missouri and we had our staff search for what? A couple of months trying to find this business to send these people a thank you and we never found them. It was a cashier's check. Amazing. Then the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm up in Houston at a church. A pastor up there just built a beautiful auditorium, seat about 2,500 people, and the dedication meeting, he had Pastor Dodie Osteen come and do the dedication meeting, had me as a speaker. Pastor John had gone on to be with the Lord. This is about, what, 2001 maybe. So Pastor Dodie's there, and I'm real, you know, I get around those people, I'm like, I just got up, greeted the people, prayed a prayer, and turned it over to her. She got up, stood in the pulpit, turned around and looked at me. She pointed her finger at me. She said, Rusty, you're one of my babies. She said, you need to go down to that island. You need to build that church God's telling you to build. And you need to do it now because Jesus and John are watching you from heaven. Well, I went home totally of that and we were done. That's it, we're done. We're going to do what God says. In the meantime, everything we've geared the church to do has been geared to create this memorial. Our giving, are praying, and now God has taken that to another level. Notice, he began to contend for the move of God, and when he did, boom, supernatural communication began. He had a vision from God. That vision from God, out of it came what? Supernatural instruction came out of it, which connected him to a man. When that happened, the man the man was not even willing. He had a religious prejudice in him, and in an open vision, he told God no three times. I mean, you read uh, the account over the next chapter. He's in Jerusalem apologizing for what he did. He is. But there in that meeting, the Bible says, while Peter yet spake these words, that's what we all want. The Holy Ghost fell on them that heard the word. The Holy Ghost fell on them that heard the word. So in our lives, our lives here in, in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, over in Illinois, Anywhere anybody may get the, uh, uh, the broadcast off of the uh, uh, internet, anybody that may be listening to this, there are things that God does that seem to be like sovereign. I would have thought that about what took place in that Episcopal church in Houston. But as I've grown in the Lord and grown in, grown in ministry, I guarantee you if you dig past the layers of that, there was some little praying grandma. Some little, some little, uh, some little, some little old man. Some, some. Who was it at Jesus' birth? Anna and uh, uh, who was the other one? There were two of them. Who? Anna and Simeon. Who were they? They were the intercessors that prayed Jesus onto the earth. And in the same way, that's what God has called us to do. That's why we have to accept the challenge of inconvenience. That was that tongue and interpretation that the Lord gave us in prayer meeting the other night, that this is a call of inconvenience. That's what it is. It's a call of inconvenience. But the good news is, out of it comes what? Those stirrings, that revival, 
we are still in the revival that started in Cornelius' house. The devil has tried to do everything to stop it, but we're still in that move of God that began in Cornelius' house. And sure, the awakenings that have happened, the Azusa Street Revival, 1907, you know, in, in Houston, a revival broke out in the 30s. Raymond T. Ritchie, it started with his dad, Raymond T. Ritchie Sr. The, the one everybody knows is Raymond T. Ritchie Jr., the one that was really anointed by God. But they had a revival break out in Houston, Texas. And it was a healing revival. And people were healed in mass. It was an amazing phenomenon. I talked to a, to a man who was actually in the revival. And he said at the end of the revival, when they felt like the Spirit of God had lifted and it closed, he said they wanted to celebrate. They wanted the city to celebrate. So they went and scheduled a parade and bought a permit for a parade. And they asked everybody that was a part of the revival to come and to bring their crutches. Uh, he said there were crutches, there were iron lungs, there were hospital beds, there were braces, there were these old uh, 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 hearing aids. There was all of this. And the, and the parade stretched 30 blocks in downtown Houston. Amen? The Bible says... The latter house will be greater than the former house. So what do we do? Well, we pray. What do we pray? In the spirit. What about not in the spirit? We pray for the rain. Lord, send the rain. Lord, send the rain. The Bible instructs us to do that. We could go to the scripture and show, pray for the rain. Pray for the rain. Somebody was talking about the flood that happened up here. When was it? In the 90s? We were in a meeting Somewhere up here, it was might have been over in Idaho or Colorado. And I was watching a news report because that flooding came all the way down into the south. Now, what was amazing, a lot of little towns got flooded. A lot of little towns got flooded. And, and, and when the news report came on, it was like the guy was preaching about the flood. I know that he wasn't. It was just God was just speaking something to me. And this is what he said. He said, through the years... The Army Corps of Engineers has built levees, has built dams, and behind those levees and dams, we have built communities, little towns, little villages, little cities. He said, it, but it started to rain, and he talked about something, it's, a, it's, a, it's the land, how it lays between the northern part of this, and it goes up into Canada. There's a name for that. But anyway, it's the watershed of those rivers. And he talked about the rain on that watershed. Now, this is what he said. This blew my mind. He said it rained on, upon that watershed and it, it, and it flowed into those rivers. And when it flowed into those rivers, the rivers returned to their natural flow. It destroyed all the dams. It destroyed all the levees. And they went back to how they were created to flow down to the Gulf of Mexico. So what has happened? Well, there's been dams of, and levees of, of, of seeker-friendly, user-friendly, denomination, all kinds of dams and levees have been built. But listen, when the rain begins to fall on the fertile plain of the hearts of God's people, then the rivers of God that's talked about in John chapter 7, out of our bellies will what flow rivers, rivers of salvation, rivers of healing, rivers of enlightenment, rivers of prosperity, rivers of deliverance. Those rivers will begin to flow. And next thing we know, we're going to be in moves of God unprecedented on the earth. But somebody's going to have to contend for it. Somebody's going to have to rise above the, 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 the level of the current need and pray upon a higher level. 
Cornelius is the example. He had it made. He had it made. I, I guarantee. Could you imagine being around the, 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 his peers, uh, all the other centurions, as they talked about him? You know, what, what's it called? We call it being a, being a fly on the wall. And listen to how they talked about Have you seen what's happened to Cornelius? He, he's, he goes to that, 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 what do they call that over there? Uh, a synagogue. He goes to, to where those Jews worship. Doesn't he see these people are defeated? Doesn't he see their God, did, their God didn't do anything for them? Amen. You can imagine what the conversation was. You can imagine the resistance he could have had. But in the midst of it, he's building a memorial. He's building something in heaven that's going to put God in remembrance. And there's a powerful study, if you ever want to do it, to go study in the both Old Testament and New Testament the word remembrance when it comes to covenant. It is a covenant word, which what you're being put in remembrance of. I'll close with this and we'll pray for a few minutes. David sat at a table one day and says, is there anybody in Saul's household that I can show kindness to? Now why did he do that? Here's why. More than likely, David bore a scar that went from the base of this thumb to right under this finger right here. And that scar was something that happened when he and Jonathan cut a blood covenant together. And one day he was probably eating or sitting at his table and when he looked at that scar, he was put into remembrance. And when he was put into remembrance, he found the only living heir of Saul's household and restored everything back to him. I'm going to tell you, we have scars in heaven that are scars of the covenant. That's why God allowed Jesus to come and sit at his right hand in a physical flesh and bone body. So that Jesus would manifest at all times in the face of the Father Scars of the covenant. And what did those what did those scars say? Those scars say those scars say, I was wounded for their transgression. I was bruised for my their iniquity. The chastisement of their peace was upon me, and by my stripes they are healed. Those scars are in heaven. Then you have what? Then you have the blood on the mercy seat. You've got a memorial there in that in that most holy of holy of all places in the universe. There is an altar, and between the, the wings of the cherubim is the blood, not on the grace seat, not on the compassion seat, but thank God on the mercy seat. What is mercy? The ability of God to stop from happening to you what should happen to you because of birth, because of iniquity. Thank God it says, it says uh, not by acts of righteousness which we have performed, but according to his mercy he has saved us. And that blood, that blood on the mercy seat, I've dealt with blood for years and, and hunting and fishing and all. Listen, blood dries up, blood gets ugly, blood has to be washed off. I was in a hotel room in Waikiki, I'd flown into Hawaii uh, before a conference. Leah came, I think, a day or two later. So I was going to take, I was going to take like two to three days and, and 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 just surf Waikiki fast and pray. That's what I did. I'd go surf in the morning, late afternoon, the rest of the time I'd be in there praying, interceding, and I was studying the Word. And I was in, I was in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter nine, verse twelve. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And I'm walking around that hotel room. I got the windows kicked out because it's a beautiful day and the trade winds are blowing and, and uh, there's no air conditioning that can beat the trade winds. They're just, they're just too cool. So 
I'm, those trade winds are blowing in. And, and I'm, I've got my eyes closed and I'm worshiping. And like the flash of a camera, I saw that, that mercy seat. And this is what I saw. I saw the freshest, reddest, most glistening red blood that you could imagine on the mercy seat. And then the Holy Ghost spoke into my spirit and said, that blood has not lost its ability, it's not lost its power, it's not lost its freshness, it's still as wet and liquid as the day it was poured on the mercy seat, for in that blood there is no death, there's only life. It almost cost me my life. It did. I started shouting. I started running around that room and I was fixing to dive out the window. Then I remembered I was four stories up. But that's how excited I got. I got so excited that just in an instant of a flash, I saw that and then the Spirit of God spoke to me. I thought, oh my God. You know, and we talk about pleading the blood. The blood pleads for you upon the mercy seat of God. All of these wonderful, combined memorials of both God and man, we are now have been compressed into a place in time in which there must be a people that rises up and contends for the move of God. And this is what has been impressed upon my spirit. Notice how quickly things changed here in our nation and in the world. Like, like in a two to three day period, the whole world had changed. And, and did you know well, we, we can go over time if we need to. The conditioning of the human experience is a science. Did you know that? We've accepted a new normal, whether we want to or not. We've accepted it. We've accepted it. NASA was commissioned back in 1996 to do a study. This was this study. How will we as a nation adjust to millions of people disappearing that was, a, that was a problem presented to our space program. How do we as a nation contend with millions of people in our nation disappearing in an instant? You know what they're talking about, don't you? They're talking about the rapture of the church. These are heathens. This is the world. So NASA came up with a program. And this is what the, the conclusion of their program was this. Millions of people can disappear off this planet. And from this nation, in two weeks, we'll be back to normal. In two weeks, we'll be back to normal. It'll be a new normal, but it won't take but two weeks. That shows you where we are. I believe if we'll obey this and do this and strengthen and build those memorials of God, that God will begin to look at the churches, doesn't matter how large or how small, and he'll say, they've, they've risen above their knees. Selfishness has been done away with. They're wanting me to come down and not just visit, but habitate like I never have before. I believe we're going to see great revival. I believe it like I believe my name. That's why we named our conference this year for such a time as this. You are here for such a time as this. Amen. Let's take just a few minutes. Three minutes. How about three minutes? Amen. Let's lift our hands, Father, and let's just pray. Let's just take and pray for revival right here in Terre Haute, Indiana. Father, we come right now and we want to pray with the same heart, 
with the same attitude, with the same spirit that Cornelius did. Father, we've not studied prayers of petition for our own need. We've not studied uh, prayers of consecration. We've studied prayers of intercession, praying in the spirit, doing that which we need to do to see darkness dispelled and to see the Holy Ghost come online in power and manifestation like we've never seen before. We thank you for the revivals of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. But Father, we desire the revival of our day, of our generation. Where is the God of the healing revival? Where is the God of the charismatic move? Where is the God of the great teaching revival? Come and live among your people in such a powerful way that the stirrings and the awakenings and the revivals of the churches will bring great harvest. Great harvest into the kingdom of God. And Father, you can get about the kingdom business you desire to do. Come on, now pray in the Holy Ghost for a few minutes. Oh, 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 <laughs> 
Hallelujah. Lift your hands, just worship God. Father, we worship you. Lord, we worship you. Lord, we worship you. We worship you, Father. We glorify your name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Now, now, now the, the, the pastors that are visiting, come up real quick. Sweetheart, come with me. Come over here with me. Now, I see like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's like you're going through it and you, and you keep saying there's, there's some parts missing here. There's, there's some parts missing here. And there is some parts, parts missing. They're not there yet. But God wants you to know they're on their way. And it's been a frustrating search to try to find them. But the Lord says, don't look anymore. Just don't look anymore. Just, just, just settle down into what you're doing. And, and, and the, you will know when the pieces come, they'll be put right into the box and they will complete the puzzle of what God says. That is, your, that is the, the calling of you for this day and this hour. For you, there's some things that have been said. You have such a kind heart and you want to do such good things for people that you're like a fixer-upper. You want to see them fixed up and blessed. And there, there's some things that have been, mis, they have been mistaken. They have been like things that have been said that have wounded you on the inside. And if you're not careful, it'll jade you. But the Lord's going to lift that off of you right now. Because it's been, a, it's been a stress. Don't ever let words hurt you again. There's, God's just going to put a supernatural block in you. Because people can be, and not even intentionally sometimes, people can be so cruel with their words, and many times they won't aim it, they won't aim it at, the, at the man. They'll aim it at the woman. And that's really not them. It's the adversary that's doing that. It's the same pattern of the garden. It's the enemy that tries to come around spiritual authority and tries to create a dissatisfaction. And that's exactly what the enemy's been trying to do. But today, you're going to be released from that and a brand new joy is going to come into your heart and a brand new expectancy for what God's going to do in the ministry and for all the harvest that's around you. And I guarantee you, it's going to be a... When you go home, you'll go home in joy. You'll say, I just can't wait to get back and go to work. Amen? Father, right now, such as we have, we stir in them the gifts of the Spirit, teaching revelation, preaching revelation, and Father, I thank you that you're sending the help, sending the help that they need in all of those areas of ministry where the part is just not there. We agree with their faith that before this year is out and into the early part of 2021, it will all arrive in one place and the puzzle will be put together and they will see the true picture of what God has called them to do. Spirit of God, we thank you for a refreshing in their spirit that on the inside it's like a brand new fresh anointing from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing, reviving, and energizing. Hallelujah. 
that, that lethargic attitude the enemy has just tried, we're just kind of going, that's broken this morning in the name of Jesus. And Father, we lay hands upon them. Ooh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your anointing working in their lives. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Now lift your hands and thank God with them. Thank Amen. You, thank you, thank you. Come on, just thank God with them. I just thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. 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 Amen, amen. Well, praise God. We only went six minutes over, but we're blessed. Ever say, I'm blessed? Have a blessed afternoon, and we'll see you this evening. Praise God. Give your pastor a hand clap as he comes. Amen.